Hello NK News podcast listeners, this is your host Jacko Zwetslut. This episode is a special one recorded entirely on video because it was filmed at, well one half of it was filmed at the White House. So to get the full effect of this podcast, I encourage you to go to YouTube, to the NK News channel and look up this episode there. Uh, otherwise you can just enjoy the audio here and imagine the visuals. Thank you and hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and here in Seoul it is very early, very, very early on uh, the morning of Saturday the 12th of September 2020, but over in Washington DC it is still the afternoon of Friday September 11th, and my guest today is Chanel Ryan. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Ryan? Rion. Rion, I beg your pardon. Chanel Rion, who is the Chief White House Correspondent for One America News Network, her daily broadcasts and investigative reports can be found at oann.com for oneofamericanewsnetwork.com. It's not often that we have the chance to interview someone with the White House in the background, so we opted to make this a, uh, a video podcast instead of just the, uh, the usual audio. So I hope you'll enjoy that. Uh, thanks very much for uh, joining me today on the show, Chanel. Thank you, Jaco, for having me. And you mentioned the, uh, a second ago that uh, there were some commemorative events today, and that was, of course, because it was uh, September 11th, uh, 19 years ago today, that uh, those planes flew into the Twin Towers in New York and also in the Pentagon, and that one that went down in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, what's been the uh, the mood today uh, in Washington with the memorials? Very quiet, of course. We had our moment of silence observed here at the White House and uh, elsewhere in D.C. at uh, eight, about 8 o'clock this morning. And we had the President and First Lady visiting Pennsylvania to go commemorate and just acknowledge the pain and the suffering and the remarkable moment that this day was 19 years ago and the loss. And so it's been very somber, very quiet. The tone that you see in the background is pretty reflective of how it's been. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I understand that you've lived in Korea before and that your mother is Korean and that you speak Korean. Uh, and your maternal grandparents lived through the Korean War, which, of course, is, has its own uh, somber memories that we commi uh, commemorated earlier uh, this year with the, uh, hang on, am I getting it right there, the 70th anniversary since the outbreak of the Korean War. Uh, is that all correct? That's correct. Yes, my mother is a native of Seoul. I still have, uh, my family is over there, my cousins, my uncle, my aunt, my grandmother. I spent growing up, we tried to spend about three months out of every year uh, with my grandparents uh, as a family. So my mom and my dad and we would live with our grandparents. I learned to speak Korean then. Mm -hmm. I learned, uh, I also learned in uh, Korean kindergarten. So that was, that was, those are always good memories, fun memories for me. I grew up in a household that really embraced and was proud of our Korean side. Uh, and how would you describe your uh, relationship to Korea? A very proud one. I look back on on how I was raised and so much of my, my mother's upbringing she brought into the way she brought us up growing up. Um, she was raised a Confucius Buddhist and so there, there were all kinds of philosophies there that I feel have been very useful in my field now and one of the more one of the more remarkable i think lessons that she always taught us and my father too 
was the concept that um, you can learn from every single experience, every single interaction, every single day. There is no person, thing, or instance that should go unnoticed as, as, as a tool to expand your wisdom. So that was something that I think has encouraged in us a spirit of curiosity that I think serves us pretty well now. Yeah, and how would you describe America's uh, relationship with, uh, with Korea? I think that the, the relationship has always been fairly strong from the war, and I, my family at least was uh, of the side that was very grateful for the American intervention all those decades ago. Uh, now we're clamping down on a little more of the trade side, which is not always fun to listen to when you're on the other side and sure. your one, your home, your you know half of your home country is being berated for its trade iniquities, and you think, oh no, we were all allies, we're all supposed to be friends, aren't we? But um, I think that at the end of it all, it's it's for the better, and uh, you we certainly have a strong Korean community in Virginia and. Many of them are underground uh, Trump administration fans. Oh, so he, I didn't know that he had a, a lot of support among the Korean American community. That's interesting. He does. I take I take Uber when I ride Uber. Um, I frequently encounter a lot of Korean drivers, and we we chat. I don't always dive straight into politics, but it almost becomes inevitable because yeah. we we end up sharing our Korean heritage. We start talking about work ethic, we start talking about all kinds of topics, and I have found myself time and again in conversations that end up political, and you have these Korean immigrants talking about how uh, this administration is is good for the country, good for promoting work, and good for promoting the values that makes for strong families. Now, you have... Uh a, quite a, a good relationship with uh, with President Trump, and you interviewed him recently. Did you talk uh, about Korea with him? I didn't. They gave us when we walked in. Yeah. Jaka, they gave us seven minutes. Good we ended God. up getting about twelve or thirteen, I think, ultimately. But they gave us seven minutes. So how many questions can you squeeze into seven minutes? Um, I save my policy questions for the briefing room. I don't know if some of your viewers might know the kinds of questions that I tend to ask, but I tend to focus on the foreign policy issues. We wanted to address the North Korean issue uh, this week, actually. There are a handful of us in the briefing room who are interested in foreign policy matters. Yeah. Did not get to because the room was filled with questions about one passing scandal after another that was not foreign policy related, unfortunately. What was it in particular that made you want to talk about North Korea this week? Well, uh, you have this controversy, this underground uh, thread talking about how there might be a change in succession plans and who knows what's going to happen if there's a changing of the guard in North Korea, right? So the question is, like, is there, uh, has negotiation, negotiations have clearly been on stand still, right? Yes, yeah, changing the... of the guard. Is there any kind of plan in place no, from the administration side to try and uh, adjust to the changing of the guard? Is there, is there anything that they can share with us in terms of preparations on that front? I think that would be a question reserved strictly for the president or the secretary of state, but it's one certainly on all of our minds, I think, as we talk about whether or not Kim Jong-un is still going to be in power or it's his sister. 
Now, assuming that uh, Kim Jong-un remains in power for a while, uh, North Korea didn't get mentioned much at the recent Republican National Convention. If President Trump is re-elected in November, what do you imagine his policy stance towards North Korea will be? The stance, I think, has not changed uh, since the outset of this administration. That has been one of opening a line of communication that hasn't been opened before. I think that policy is going to continue. Whether or not the... uh, the delegation over there in North Korea will cooperate? That's the bigger question. But there's so many, with North Korea, no conversation is complete about North Korea without talking about China. So obviously we're in a situation where China is not on good terms with the United States and not foreseeably on good terms with the United States. So that's going to have, whatever happens with China really is going to be the determining factor in, in terms of what happens with North Korea on a baseline level. Right. Now, are you worried that a Joe Biden presidency could have a negative effect on negotiations and relations with North Korea? I think that a Joe Biden presidency would be harmful in the sense that uh, at this moment, there's a healthy dose of fear on the North Korean side when it comes to dealing with the Trump administration, whether it is fear grounded on their their pure policies or whether it's fear grounded in personality. The question of, oh, Trump is so erratic that we never know what he's going to do. That might be the, per- the, the perception that the North Korean side has that actually plays to our advantage when it comes to diplom- diplomacy. With a Biden presidency, there's less question of strength there. I think that a Biden, the Obama-Biden era was very clear about how they operated on a foreign policy scale. And it was a very uh, hands-off, lean back, allow the other countries to kind of uh, seed, take ground. I think that the North Koreans will take advantage of that. And of course, as they always do, they always test the mettle of the relationship, of the leadership in the very first few months. And should North Korea test its mettle with uh, a Biden administration, I don't foresee a Biden administration acting or reacting with strong words. I don't feel that they will actually act in a way that the North Koreans would understand. Now, that fear that uh, is felt in North Korea uh, about uh, President Trump, how does that balance with the uh, the good relationship that President Trump has with Kim Jong-un? Uh, we've heard in well, both in the speeches and in the letters that they have quite a good personal relationship, and uh, President Trump has told Kim Jong-un, we're friends. So how do... How does that fear and that friendship, how do they play off against each other? I think that's a giant chess game that you're watching. And in negotiation, you uh, you have a, a dynamic here where you are, you're dealing with a very erratic personality with Kim Jong-un. And I think that Trump understands that. He's one of the first few leaders of a major country to understand that when you're dealing with a rogue regime like Kim Jong-un leads, it's important to ensure that there's a lot of unpredictability. Both sides will agree that our policy with North Korea has been not unpredictable. I think that the back and forth, warm, cold, warm, cold relationship that we have watched with Trump and Kim Jong-un is a, is a giant play. It's a giant um, strategy to help make sure that they're on their toes because we haven't seen a purely consistent friendship. Remember, I mean, he would go on to ta- Trump would go into tangents and call him Rocket Man and you know throw all kinds of uh, ad hominem attacks, and then the next day they're best friends. That I think is the kind of unpredictability this administration has calculated as important to communicating with 
with uh, the North Korean regime in a way that they would understand. And I think that when you talk to people like Katie McFarland back in the day, when she was in the Trump administration in the early days, and she was uh, drafting up some of the early foreign policy dealing with North Korea, North Korea has always been that enigma, the enigma that we were kind of able to deal with in terms through the lens of China and through the lens of Russia sometimes, through the lens of Japan sometimes, but no one has quite been able to really grasp the problem that North Korea was. Who knows what the game plan is? The bottom line is that this administration, in terms of bringing on that hot, cold relationship, at least they were talking, at least they were communicating. And I think that's something that is overlooked when we discuss this problem. Now, this week, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, in Washington, D.C. in particular, about the, uh, the new book that's come out by Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward, in which he talks about uh, the relationship between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, also cites, uh, I think, 24 personal letters between the two men. Um, there's been some interesting, been some pre-publication, uh, I don't know, leaks or releases, I guess, that have come out, and it's, uh, it's well, been quite interesting. Naturally, Jocko, um, the leaks have been toward media that is very friendly to Washington Post. And if your readers or your listeners are familiar with One American News, we have not we have not been the best of friends with Jeff Bezos's pet project over there. Right. Uh, you haven't always uh, had uh, the smoothest of relationships with other White House correspondents. In fact, you recently set up the National White House Correspondents Association, which attracted some attention to you yourself. Uh, why did you feel that a new correspondents association was necessary? If you watch any of these briefings from beginning to end, you'll notice that of of the 14 or 15 seats that are occupied, they're all occupied by a single club. It's a private club that operates monopolistically on public property. When you listen to their questions, they all seem to be coming from the same direction. There doesn't seem to be a diversity of questions asked in that briefing. And why? Because there are not a diversity of, of uh, networks or outlets represented in that room. Why? The White House doesn't control this briefing room. This private club does. And when the private club is run by a very particular set in Washington who have very particular political beliefs, you end up with a briefing room and a White House press corps that is severely unbalanced. And so the reason we needed we need a second group is that we simply need more balance in the briefing room. Balance in terms of viewpoints, balance in terms of outlets, because the, the viewpoints that are being expressed currently represent more the line of, of talking points of the DNC, the Democrat National Committee. And it, we just need balance in here. And that's why we have the second group challenging the monopoly of this private organization that has been operating at the White House for too long. And how's that working out so far? Working great. I still am in the briefing room every day. I bring in a second reporter with me, um, and we have been rotating journalists through the briefing room. So now we have journalists in there who otherwise would not have had an opportunity to be in the room. We have brought in outlets like Epoch Times to ask their China-centric questions and their foreign policy-based questions. We bring in uh, John Solomon's uh, outlet, Just the News, they come in with their questions on uh, days when we're dealing with Israeli policy, Middle Eastern policy, 
I bring in a colleague from AMI Magazine. He's from an Orthodox Jewish magazine. Um, these people, to me, are more appropriate on certain days in the briefing room and therefore need to have, an, have a presence in there. So we mm. make sure that we have that happen. We're also working on getting a, uh, a camera inside the briefing room so that we have full access for all our other members. Uh, back to North Korea. There's also been, of course, recently, uh, a couple of months ago, a book by uh, John Bolton, former national security advisor, uh, in which he argued that, among other things, the uh, president's desire to place his personal interests ahead of the country's interests extended to his dealing with world leaders, including Kim. And uh, John Bolton wrote, or said, rather, in an interview on uh, ABC News, if he thought he could get a photo opportunity with Kim Jong-un in the demilitarized zone in Korea, there was a considerable considerable emphasis on the photo opportunity and the press reaction to it, and little or no focus on what such meetings did for the bargaining position of the United States. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely not. If you're going to take the argument that this president has uh, a lot of focus on optics and a lot of focus on appearances, then it is absolutely in his interest. And you see this in his actual policy. Look at what has happened in the Middle East in the last month. Things that could not have been accomplished over the past 30 years have been accomplished within a three-week period. Um, it is in his best interest to have success. Optics are a huge part of that success, especially on the world scale. So I disagree with Bolton. I think that he uh, was a very disgruntled player when he left the White House. It was a very messy divorce, and that is reflected in his writings. It is reflected in his in his. Uh, in his parting perception of his former boss. And I think it's incorrect. I think that when you are dealing with a personality who is really, really intent on leaving a legacy that is reflective of his name, making his name proud, but making the country proud as well, you have a person who's going to be as interested in the optics of what is happening as much as the content. And we have seen nothing but content flowing out of this White House in the last four weeks on the foreign policy scale especially on the Middle East. You have Bahrain now coming through and saying they are going to sign a normalization agreement with Israel on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. The Abraham Accords has been the one, of the, the one of the most monumental foreign policy victories that we have seen in decades. No one here wants to talk about it. They all want to talk about these little scandals brought about. He said, she said, uh, he thinks, they think. It's not based on... Uh, often not based on evidence, based on hearsay or anonymous sources. These are problematic when we're focusing our foreign policy on the personality side of hearsay. That's a problem. Have you had a chance to read all or part of uh, John Bolton's book, in particular the bits about the uh, summits with Kim Jong-un? I have read excerpts. I have not read the whole book. Again, I feel that the, total, the sum total of the book is mm -hmm. the result of a disgruntled former employee. I used to love the hawkish positions that uh, Bolton took, especially when it came to how he dealt with China, how he viewed China. But he himself has had faux pas that really did not bode well for us as a nation, especially with regards to North Korea, when he, that infamous moment in the spring when he was in that interview and he, he uh, made a reference about how we would view North Korean policy and alluded to us taking military action. That was, that was uh, something that really upset 
President Trump in the background. And that was something that that was the beginning of the end for that relationship. What's the, what do you think is the, the best way forward towards a, a peace with North Korea and to denuclearize North Korea? <laughs> Jack, I wish I wish I had the answer to that. If I did, I think I'd be in a very different position. Ah. Uh, but to me, in watching with frustration in the background how North Korea has just been this problem no one wanted to touch, it seems that regime change would only would be one of the only options. But we used to think that of the Middle East. Mm. And I would like to direct us back to the Middle East because it offers a very parallel, I think, discussion. When it came to how the Middle East was, uh, how these Muslim-majority countries have struck normalization deals with Israel, something that we never thought would have happened decades. Uh, you have a model that the Trump foreign policy team has fashioned, and that is an economic centric model, one that was presented to each of these countries in a way that they could not refuse, if you will. I don't know if that will work with North Korea, but it's one model that we can look at where we took a very impossible seeming diplomatic situation mm. and solved it. You know, this Tuesday, we'll watch the Abraham Accords be signed by three Muslim majority countries that we have watched normalize their relationship with Israel. Those were accomplished by a very out of the box approach an economic-centric approach, and whatever template they're using there may or may not work with North Korea, but it's certainly something that I'm sure scholars are studying at this point. Whether that's a template we can apply to North Korea, who knows? Now, obviously, President Trump, as President of the United States, has to act in what he sees is the best interest of the United States. Do you ever worry, or you can, yeah, is there a concern that uh, the best interest of the United States might not always... Uh, run parallel with the best interests of the Korean people, uh, especially given that you've got relatives over here in Korea? That's a good question. I think that by the United States severing its ties with China increasingly, especially on the trade front, you see the severing of ties with China, but then the expansion of, of uh, trade opportunities for other countries elsewhere, Vietnam, Korea, Japan. I think that what is good for the United States is good for South Korea. And I think we will see that even more so as the United States continues to sever ties with China and we continue to realize as a world that China is no longer going to be that cooperative communist nation sitting on the sidelines. They're actually going to be a lot more regressive and we're going to need allies as a result. So I think that policy that's good for the United States is on the whole good for South Korea, good for the, the Asian countries outside of China. But I'm thinking in particular uh, in, in terms of negotiating with North Korea, we talked earlier about that the strength that President Trump projects when negotiating with North Korea and that that uh, injects a bit of fear into uh, the mind of Kim Jong-un and those around him. Uh, do you think that the, the alliance relationship that the United States has with South Korea limits the extent to which he can uh, put fear into North Korea because you know South Korea and North Korea are right next to each other and if right, he's right. if he's tough on North Korea North Korea could get tough on South Korea um, we've tried I think we've tried so many different avenues of leadership styles when it came to kind of sort of addressing North Korea but not really and this is really the first time that we've we've bluntly taken head on head 
looked at North Korea straight in the face and said, you are not to mess with our allies. I think that the strength that we were discussing earlier is going to be a very important factor in preventing future situations where North Korea would use South Korea as leverage in and as as a threat agent to um, to try and bully allies nearby. We're in a different we're in a completely different chapter of foreign policy right now. As the, 2020 has been a very strange year, but it's been an extremely illuminative year for foreign policy, um, mostly in the Middle East, but also in Asia. And I think that that North Korea is going to be increasingly left out, as it has for the last three, four, five decades. It's going to be left out even more in a way that's going to be very difficult for it to survive, especially when China no longer it holds the relationship it once held with the United States. Again, China is the key to so much of what we talk about when it comes to North Korea. And as China continues to have to solve its own internal domestic problems, you watch Hong Kong going up in, in flames where you have this movement trying to challenge the Communist Party of China. As China turns more inward to try and deal with its domestic messes, North Korea will be left increasingly to its own devices. It will, it will, the more we can separate North Korea from China, the better we can actually make the economic leverage like sanction, like actual sanctions work in a way that they will not react, uh, in a way that they will not react and retaliate on South Korea, if, if that makes sense. If you had a chance to join President Trump on a, uh, a trip to North Korea uh, to report on that, would you go? Absolutely. And you guys will have to help me get interviews with the North Korean embassy. Hopefully we get to sit down with Kim Jong-un too. Right. Is that something that is on your bucket list, as it were? It absolutely is. Yeah. Have you had a chance to come to South Korea as a journalist yet? I have. I went and covered KCPAC. I don't know if you are familiar with that, but it was the first Korean conservative political action meeting. And they had a long lineup of, of well-known Korean politicians. I forget which ones they are now, so excuse me. But mm -hmm. I went and covered that for about three days. And we actually went over to the DMZ, visited from afar one of the bridges overlooking the DMZ. We, we conducted a few hits. We put out a few stories. And it was an incredible honor because I had not visited Korea in, gosh, 15 years at that point. And how long ago was that KCPAC meeting? Last spring or last summer. Now, you, you write on your website, people can find you, of course, at uh, chanelrion.com. Uh, you write on your website that uh, when you were growing up, you lived uh, miles from the demilitarized zone and were able to look over and, and see into uh, North Korea. What was that like? That was a very remarkable experience. Um, I had, we had family up there, and I don't remember which parts they were in, but it was my uncle and my aunt. And I had two cousins and we, when we visited them, it was always such, you knew, even as a child, I was maybe four or five years old, even as a child, I could tell the difference in, in life, just miles away from this very foreign and very different country and its regime. It was a very quiet place. It was a very somber place. Um, just, you know, miles south, you'd go back to Seoul and it was it was lively and alive and lights everywhere and it was beautiful. Yeah. But you could tell as a child the difference and something was off. Something was different. Something was a little more serious. And it 
that experience really did stick with me, especially as I grew to understand the context of what that quietness, where that quietness was coming from. My grandfather had, uh, my Harabuji had a brother that ended up not making it to south of the line and was in North Korea. He had not spoken to his brother in decades, had lost touch, couldn't find him. And that story always was something that he would talk about, how the tragedy of that split and the evil that was communism, holding people against their will, keeping people in ways that um, did not allow them to exercise their individual freedoms, the way that South Korea was able to thrive in just two, three, four short decades from nothing. What was astounding to me when I later on went and studied international relations, I ended up uh, looking at these different examples of of countries starting from scratch and how they would progress under different models, right? A very common discussion in Economics 101. And you look at how Argentina was number six on the GDP scale, I think, uh, back in the early 50s, early 60s. And, and once they adopted this more socialistic model, their capital in the world ended up descending to a point where you have a very, a much a much poorer Argentina than they should be, given their resources. Mm. And then you look at South Korea and how, in the same time period, it went from nothing, it went from ground zero to becoming a very thriving uh, capitalistic nation. You see those two differences, and it made sense to me later on in college, looking back at those economic models and saying, well, clearly communism has failed wherever it was tried. Socialism is communism light, but even when you look at countries in Europe, they're so dependent on on the outside world that they will never be able to be self-sufficient. That's a scary proposition, especially when you're dealing with a situation like China, where in the last year we've realized that reliance on outside powers is not always the best thing, right? That experience was... That experience, I think, really uh, left a mark on me, especially through the eyes of my grandfather, through the eyes of my grandmother, and through the eyes of my extended family out there. Now, we've got the U.S. presidential election coming up in just about, uh, well, just under eight weeks from now, I guess. Um, Some people are thinking that uh, Kim Jong-un might do something in October to get uh, President Trump's attention, maybe a little October surprise, perhaps... uh, showcasing a new weapon at the uh, October 10th uh, projected um, October 10th military parade that they often have in Pyongyang. So do you think that would uh, have any impact at all on uh, on the minds of voters in America? I don't think so. I think that right now Americans are focused purely on COVID. Kim Jong-un to most Americans is still that boy who cries wolf. He right he he acts up every springtime just to get some more attention, to get some more money from China, to get some more money from Russia. And I think that um, for the most part, Americans are really focused on the, the tensions that we're seeing in some of these bigger cities. They're focused on the virus. They're focused on maybe on the periphery, they're worried about China. But even then, I think most of it's going to be very domestically centered as we go into the election, regardless of what Kim Jong-un does, and we're just assuming he's going to act out in the way that he's he's acted out in the past, 
it's really not going to be that much. He's going to throw a rocket into the water and we're going to all worry about it for about two minutes and then off to the next headline. The everyday American is worried about their law and order. They're worried about whether or not their kids can go to school going into the winter time. Um, they're worried about jobs. They're worried about domestic issues. It'll be very difficult to make Americans more interested in the Korean Peninsula. Mm. Granted that nothing extra dramatic happens. Now, are you a betting woman, Chanel? I won't go to the casino, but yes, I will be. A, I am a gambling woman. Okay. What What would you uh, bet on a uh, a President Trump victory come November? I think there will be a Trump victory, and the question will be, how decisive will it be? Will it will the ultimate outcome be? And that's that's the real problem. I think that suburban voters are trending more towards Trump. Again, if you believe in polls and you followed the polls from last spring, the tide is certainly changing and it has to do with how people feel domestically. I believe the RNC did a better job than the DNC in conveying to the Americans that um, there's one party that actually will defend your property your lives will stand by law and order and there's another party that won't even acknowledge it and if they do acknowledge it it's three months too late and it's not the message that res that is resonating very well with suburban voters which is really going to be an important uh demographic going into november 3 but uh it's not a question of who will win. It's a question of how long will, be, will we be sitting in the courts fighting over whether Biden or Trump won. Mm. Because looking at the numbers, it looks just like it did back in 2016. If you remember 2016, 99% of polls said Hillary Clinton was in the lead. And when, the, when election night came, it was a very different story. I believe we're going to see that again this time around, um, perhaps in perhaps in louder fashion. But the question will be, as you look at states like California, as you look at states like Florida, as you look at these famously difficult states when it comes to voting integrity, there's going to be a big court drama. So it's uh, it's going to be a lot. We're not going to be heaving a sigh of relief come November three. Is my prediction. We're going mm. to be yammering about who won well into January. Just like in, uh, in, in 2000. Perhaps. I don't know if we'll have a situation where a single court will decide, though. I think that there's just going to be so much division as both sides fight over what actually happened. Right. Well, I want to thank you again so much for joining us here today on the NK News podcast, Chanel Rion. And uh, do... Uh, Please try to get in a good couple of questions about North Korea and uh, uh, North Korean negotiations to President Trump the next time you're in the briefing room. Absolutely. You guys do incredible work. I've been following you. I have been following NK News for several years now. Now, oh. granted, and the last year I have not been focusing on North Korean politics too closely, so I've had to rely very almost exclusively on your updates. So I appreciate that. Um, but thank you for having me and keep up the good work. Thanks so much and keep well. Thank you, Jacka.